This is an ABC podcast. Aaron Farso was living up in his grandma's community on the tip of Cape York when he borrowed his uncle's dinghy and headed to his first acting audition on Thursday Island. That day, Aaron won a role in RAN, Remote Area Nurse, and other TV series followed, including the crime dramas The Straits and East West 101. Aaron's also presented the Torres Strait Island cooking show, Straight to the Plate, and he was one of the stars of the hilarious sketch show, Black Comedy. And he's not just an actor, he's also the executive director of his own film and TV company, Lone Star. So Aaron Faso is a big success. But over the years, as Aaron is the first to point out, that success has come despite some of the personal decisions that he's made. And also despite the racism he's experienced as a man of proud Torres Strait and Tongan heritage. The stories are all laid bare in Aaron's new memoir, So Far, So Good. Hi, Aaron. Hey, how you doing? Very well. Congratulations on the book. And the title is a nice play on words. How have you heard <laughs> your surname mangled over the years? Oh, man, there's been so many uh, version, um, Faso or Fazio, Faziotti, um, <laughs> Gosh, it's yeah. It's that apostrophe uh, that throws us Anglo speakers, hey? Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. I think it is the uh, the apostrophe. <laughs> well, what's your full name? What What's the name on your birth certificate? Elone Paya Hetomo Tokilao Faoso. Okay, so Faso is straightforward then. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> you can try and repeat my name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to have another cup of tea before I do that. So your grandma's country is Saibai Island. That's the, the northernmost island in the Torres Strait, just off the coast of Papua New Guinea. But when she was young, a community of Saibai Islanders moved to the tip of Cape York and established the communities of Bamaga and Saisia, which is where your mum was born. But when she was a teenager, the family moved south again to Cairns so that she could finish high school. And it was in Cairns that your nan started working at a local prawn factory. How good a prawn peeler was she? Man, she was a champion peeler. And, you know, you've got to understand that, you know, Working with seafood is 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 like secondhand nature to someone like my grandmother because you know she grew up in an island lifestyle, growing up in Saibai, then you know re- relocating to to Bamiga. Torres Strait Islanders are kin or, or or at one with with the water and also with seafood, so it's it's the staple of our diet. So so I guess when it came to peeling prawns. Nan was kind of already a champion anyway, so by the time she got there, I mean, you could just imagine how she impressed her supervisors and and, and the rest of her colleagues as well. So, yeah, she became uh, not only a gun prawn peeler within the uh, prawn factory, but uh, she she got a couple of first-place prizes at the uh, annual Fun in the Sun fair in Kansas where one of the uh, novelty events was uh, the prawn peeling and, and eating competition. So, <laughs> Did she do her, the eating as well? No, she didn't do the eating. <laughs> she, uh, Her uh, best best friend, uh, Jenny Martins, they still remain best friends um, from that time. So Jenny Martins, uh, her son, uh, Big Warren, uh, was the... Uh, was the uh, was the recipient or was the was the eater? Was he so Big Nan Warren before just... before this, or is that what turned him into Big Warren? All this prawny. <laughs> no, I think Big Warren had a had a bit had a bit of size about him <laughs> at that time. Anyway, so yeah, they used to clean up. I think they they cleaned up uh, consecutively uh, for three or four years in a row. Like that was like <laughs> they had the mantle. <laughs> Did your nan take under her wing at the prawn factory? What young man did she meet? Oh, yeah, look, there was this dashing young, good-looking sort that uh, walked in through the door one day and uh, he was uh, apparently built like a brick outhouse but couldn't speak an ounce of English. And that was my father. He was Tongan. How had he ended up at that prawn factory in Cairns from Tonga? Oh, mate, like, uh, I think he uh, attempted uh, a couple of times to uh, jump ship. I think that was on his fourth attempt uh, out, out here to Australia. And you can understand, like, you know, Dad was the eldest of uh, 13 children and 
by the time he was about 20, 25, 26, uh, he, uh, yeah, decided to, to uh, take a, a free trip to, uh, <laughs> to Australia and uh, ended up in Perth, works on a, a crayfishing boat there for a number of months or years and then over a course of a, a couple of years makes his way around to Sydney, then ends up further north in uh, far north Queensland Cairns. <laughs> and that's where he meets your mum. The two of them fell in love and were married and had you and then your little brother. What's the tradition, Aaron, in the Torres Strait Islands when it comes to a, a firstborn child? Yeah, look, usually when um, a daughter is married out or the, fir- the eldest daughter is married out of the family, the first eldest is is given back to re- replace the daughter that has left the family. So it's almost like it's filling that space, right? So in that very much in that same way, but in a contemporary sense, and due to the fact that, you know, my my father was tight with with my grandmother and and my grandfather because, you know, they basically uh, take in dad in as a a son, so to speak, because, you know, he had nobody in Cairns at the time. So they took him under his wing, gave him a place to stay and, he was extremely grateful for them for for doing what they did, and I guess when uh, when Nan, you know, broached the uh, the subject, I guess around that, Dad was only too willing, and plus, like he understood this as well because he was a cultural islander as well. You know, there, there are some customs that we actually are quite quite aligned with. So Dad was kind of like, yeah, look, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. And this was without the consultation of my mother. Oh my <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, when Mum talks about it now, I tell you, she's, she goes, man, I was so ups- I was so mad. I was so <laughs> upset. I couldn't believe that this decision was being made about my unborn child without even me con- <laughs> being consulted about it. I was the one that was carrying him. <laughs> I was carrying the child anyway, yeah. So you, you end up spending a lot of time at your nans, but you're very close physically around the block from one another. How would your nan put you to bed at night when you were a, a little kid? Oh look, she'd um, she'd sing a song that was you know specifically composed f- for me hmm. and by her, but they're often like sad songs or, or 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 they had you know I mean although they were kind of comforting and they'd kind of soothe you and put you to sleep. As I grew older, I kind of look back and there was you know it's always about some some a birdie birdie flying away or or going away and. And I guess that's kind of, I, I kind of understand now in terms of, because a lot of men in my grandmother's life have, you know, you know, her father, he went away, unfortunately, and never came back. I mean, even today, when you talk to my grandmother, when she remembers that day that he went away and never returned, it's still a, extremely um, an emotional place for my for my for my grandmother to to this day so those those songs always had something of that type of essence i guess whether it was about a bird flying away or was a bird that was named me that was that was, that flew away those songs had have got some sort of have some sort of sadness attached to it yeah, I mean, at the same time, you, I mean, you don't re- register, right? You just, as a kid, you just sing me, sing me my song, sing me my song, sing me my song, Nan. I'm gonna go sleep. <laughs> <laughs> as a as a little kid, you spent a lot of time at a family property south of Cairns, which of course is cane country. How do you remember it smelling? Oh man, my childhood uh, spent like sugar cane. <laughs> you know that that yeah, because there was just you know you were surrounded by sugar cane farms and a loomba. And the Anu property, which was um, owned by Nade and Yaba Anu, who were my two great-great-grandfathers. So we grew up basically at, in like, I remember that's my, my childhood memories, is just growing up in this block of land, a three-acre plot, and we just grew up playing uh, with all our relatives, all our cousins, um, 
like when we knew as kids we were going out to Wollumba, I mean, it was just excitement because we knew that we were going to catch up with all our cousins. We'll be playing Tiggy, playing hide and go seek until the sun comes home. And we knew that part of that being at Illumba, that we'd be going down to our local swimming spot, what we call our, our own swimming pool, which is Behanna Creek. So that my uh, childhood memories are just filled with, you know, so many fond memories of, uh, I guess, for me, we, we were just so surrounded with with love and um, and that kind of connections with, with family and extended family and... When I look back now as uh, as an adult, I go like, geez, like they must have been doing it tough or, you know, there must have been a lot of money around uh, at the time. But you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have actually paid mind to any of that because you were just constantly just surrounded by, by all this love and, and, and affection and, and um, you know, connection of family. How did things change for your family when you were just six? Well, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess what I remember is um, when I lost both my father and my grand grandfather, and, and I mean, I always thought that you know that there was like a six month gap or a year gap between the passing of my father, then then my then my grandfather, but in fact, when I I got mum to kind of check check me on that it was actually two weeks apart mm. so for me I was just absolutely when 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 she brought that to light I was absolutely blown away because um yeah I, I couldn't imagine you know in terms of what what my mother and my grandmother were going through at the time right you know I was I guess I was dealing with my own loss when uh these two uh, significant, you know, male role models kind of, kind of disappeared out of my life. Yeah, all I, all I remember distinctly. It's so vivid that it just turned. It was just sadness. You know, it was, it was almost. You know, I, I reflect on it as the dark days um, because there was there was sadness and things just changed immediately. I mean. You know, you, you're actually you know living in a in a nice house, and you're, you're surrounded by your father, and he's doing well for himself. And dad was, I mean, he was he was working in the mines and all working construction, and he was quite an a, astute kind of practitioner in in that game as well. So you know, we, we're, we're bouncing along. We're you know, life's life's a dream. When you know, we've got two cars. A dog. I mean, the quintessential family setup, right? Two kids. Uh, we got a third brother that's just, just literally just born, and suddenly we we lose these. You know, it's almost overnight that we lost um, these men, and I, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I mean, because I, I, you know, you can't comprehend it as a six-year-old kid. All, all I remember is, um, you know, they were gone, and and I and I guess the re- reality. Oh kicked in and, you know, in terms of, you know, when, when was the viewing of both both men, um, I just remember it's vivid when, when I kissed my father's lips and he was like, he, it was him, but his lips were so cold and, and I just knew that whatever that, whoever that person was in that box wasn't my father. A few years after your dad's death, Aaron, your mum got together with another Tongan man. <laughs> What kind of relationship was that? Uh, yeah, that was pretty. Um, yeah, that was a pretty uh, kind of uh, toxic type of relationship. And I mean, I've got to be really um, respectful uh, around how I, you know, describe this because as I've grown up and you know, and I've gone through my own trials and tribulations, I really kind of I understand where. My mum's kind of, you know, where her, her mental state and, and um, you know, in terms of the grief she was going through and, and, and the want that she wanted for her, her children. And I think that the, what I know about, um, gosh, I'm starting to get emotional. I mean, when, when I think back and, um, and I think about, you know, my mother and, you know, the grief that she was going through and, 
and 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 along with my my grandmother, I mean the decisions that these women made were always for our benefit, right? Mm-hmm. So I can understand. You know, I mean, she could have, she would have been looking at her three young boys and, and kind of foreseeing that these these young boys they need they, they need a man in their life, they need a male role model, they need support, and I guess I I know from that from that position I understand that they've always put us first with every decision that they were making. Any any decision that they ever made from the day that my my father and my grandfather passed away, it was for our benefit. And it was always for our benefit. I mean, that's the position that they were always coming from. So, you know, I understand. And and this relationship she took up with this 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 next guy was was from from purely that position and and it was a toxic relationship where she experienced there was, you know, domestic violence and I remember because she had my my great grandmother staying with her. My grandmother's uh, mother, uh, my mother and my great grandmother, they were really close. So it was a couple of nights when I'd you know bounce in between Nan's place and Mum's place. So there was you know a couple of nights there where we were hearing these noises coming out from from the wall actually through the wall. We were sleeping with our great grandmother, so we loved sleeping with her, right? So, um, but it was something that my brother, my brother had picked up on and had told me about, but I wasn't sure. And um, and it's interesting, you know, that when you when you kind of go back now and you're thinking as yeah, and as a kid that you can pick up on this stuff. So once you know, I I, I kind of verified that for myself. I um. Yeah, I stopped going around mums for yeah. I I think I I stopped going around and sleeping, sleeping at mum's place. I mean, I'd go there from time to time, but it'd it'd only be a day visit. And um and you know the word had gotten gotten around, and 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 once my <laughs> once my uh, grandmother got wind of it, I mean you know all hell broke loose. You know. Eventually, your mum escaped that relationship and and you made a new home, a new household really with her and your grandma and your two little brothers. Who ruled the roost in that in that house with those two alpha man, females? Yeah, these two alpha <laughs> Oh man, you should, you should still see them now bickering. Oh my <laughs> gosh, you know? Um uh, it was always my uh my grandmother was always the dominant she was always the dominant figure. And you know, from a cultural perspective as well, mum was always. Um, I mean, don't worry, man. Mum held her own too. I mean, Nan was Nan was kind of like Nan had bite, she had growl, but mum was more of a slow burner, right? And I will tell you, when, when mum hit the roof, you you didn't want to be around, man. I was like, so uh, you know, it was a. Uh, you know, it was interesting. It was it was interesting. You know, um, seeing those two women not only just coexisting in the same household, but but also leaning on one another. It was all focus was on on raising us three boys. And um, I mean, I'm I'm more like my grandmother. You know, as you grew into a teenager, Aaron, there was a man who became important to you. He was part Torres Strait Islander and part Sicilian. Tell me about Mario Romano and the role oh, he played in your life. Yeah, Mars. Um, love that man. I guess, you know, I was going through life and, you know, after losing dad, I think I was quite sad and I, and I was quite actually quite shy. You know, I'd, I'd experienced, you know, bullying from time to time, you know, from all the kids and... And also, you know, protecting my younger brother, you know, because you know if he was getting into a scrap, I'd uh, I'd get in there and you know back him up or actually defend him, you know. You're getting your butt kicked, so to speak, and um, and it, and for me, it was it was quite tough because it was because I didn't have a I didn't have an older brother or I didn't have a dad to kind of run to, right? So that was all that was all kind of really tough there were tough periods and and as a kid you're still finding your feet who you know where where the hell you are and who you are and 
I mean, society throws so many different versions of men at you too. So I think it was year eight, um, there was an opportunity through a cousin of mine to join the karate club. And it, was, and it wasn't a formalised karate. I mean, it, there, it was formalised, but it wasn't anything that was set up like a shop front. But there was a place, there was a dojo, which was a, which was a community centre. And the karate club um, operated out of there. And I guess from the day that Mario uh, walked into my life or I walked into his life, um, he became a father figure, so to speak, pretty much instantly instantaneously and because of the fact that he when he was younger I think when he was 17 working up in Weeper and well back then it was the Camalco Mines my old man was there and he took care of he said yeah your father used to take took me under, <laughs> under his wing and used to look, look, look after me because I was a young fella too so it was kind of being like this, this has all come full circle right so it's kind of being re reciprocated now and um and I'm so thankful and grateful for that because um, he became one of three or four kind of father figures that I still kind of in, I'm still in contact hmm. with and still have a strong relationship with. But he, you know, he taught me how to handle myself, and um, from that day on, I was never going to get get a beaten again. I was going to defend myself and kick your ass as well. <laughs> <laughs> you were kicking ass on the footy field uh, at the same time. It wasn't just karate and, and you got a scholarship at high school through that and then your footy talents got you noticed and you came down to Sydney after year 12 with the thought of maybe trying to make it as a professional football player. Who were you living with in Redfern when you came to Sydney? Yeah, well, I was living with um, Aunty Christine. He's uh, not just any Aunty. <laughs> She's not like my Auntie Christine, I tell you. <laughs> well, she was. She now likes to be referred to as Auntie Maya, Auntie Maya, or Auntie Christine Arnu, and she was basically just in the midst of uh, recording her her debut album, uh, Styling Up. So basically, uh, yeah, look, I, I'd landed in Sydney in the pursuit of this football career, and then having the opportunity to go and live with my Auntie Maya or Auntie Christine. And uh, gosh, that, what what a world in, in terms of I was able to kind of peer into. Whilst, you know, she's forging her career, I was in the midst of, you know, chasing my career and the the uh, the experiences and the events and the and the parties and the, but also the people that I met through her was just extraordinary. It was an extremely exciting time here in Sydney. And, you know, the 2000 Olympics had just been announced. There was just this uh, surge of, a surge in, in the Indigenous or the Aboriginal and Torres Strait art scene um, because through Annie Maya or Annie Christine, I not only um, was able to kind of observe her on her direct trajectory in her singing career, but also she was also playing in in the contemporary dance world as well. So she was also a member of the Bangara Dance Company, and so yeah, I mean this this whole kind of art scene was actually exploding here in here in Sydney. She took you to a Bangara dance performance one night, and who did yeah, you? Uh, what happened did. out of that? Oh man, I I fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> I went to uh, I went to uh, a Bangara performance, and I'd never been like because you know, come on, I'm from I'm from Cairns, I'm from the Torres Straits. Um, this is I'm like a kid in a candy store with all these experiences, right? I've never seen this contemporary kind of dance, and and I'm actually learning through through Ani Maya. So anyway, I go to go to this. Uh, we go to this. Uh, I don't know what they're they doing. They were doing was a praying mantis dream. Anyway, anyway, it was one of the earlier shows, and yeah, uh, wow, I fell in love. I, I saw I saw one of the dancers come out on stage, and I was just blown away. Knocked over, head over heels, and her name was was Gina Rings, and um, yeah, we we'll look. Uh, I um, and the rest is history. I courted her, I courted Gina, and um, look, we fell in love, 
and I, I momentarily forgot about football. <laughs> Actually, what I was down there for initially. <laughs> what football? And, football? You, and you forgot about contraception, Aaron. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely... <laughs> contraception? Contraception? What's, what's that thing? <laughs> what's that thing? How Oops. Did, how did Oops. you react when Gina told you she was pregnant? Because oh, you're only man. 18. Oh, yeah, I was only 18, man. And, like, you know, we, we're only kind of, like, six months... You know, like, you know, all this, you know, and that's the honeymoon period, you know, and just everything's, you're just in love and everything's beautiful. Life's great. Anything's achievable. You can, you can achieve anything. You're at, you're at that, right? Cause you're at the height of euphoria, your, your endorphins are going off. And at 18, you're not even in control of your hormones anyway. Anyway. So she, she, I come home from, I was working at Courier Radio at the time and I, and I got home from work and yeah. She said, I'm pregnant. I said, what? <laughs> she said, I'm pregnant. All I need to know is if you're going to be around or not, because because if, if you're not going to be around, you can leave now, because I'll do it by myself. And I was like, no, nah, man, I'm staying. <laughs> so she kind of made the decision for me. Not, But, you know, like, I, I think... Um, yeah, she basically put me, um, she gave me an ultra, ultimatum there and then. I was like, whoa, you, you didn't give me some time to think about this for a minute? <laughs> like, you, you just hit me with this and just spit that out? <laughs> anyway. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. This part of our conversation includes reference to suicide. So, Aaron, you and Gina had a baby boy together. You were both super young and the relationship wasn't working out and footy wasn't working out for you in Sydney either. Where did you take off to to try and get your head together? Oh, it almost it felt like I was just on this treadmill, man. It was going nowhere and um, got, got a bit too much. And um, I guess to reset, I went straight back to Bamiga. I went back to Sacia. So this is your, your grandma's community right up on the tip of, of Cape York. What's it look like? Oh, man, it's... Um, this is pre-bitumen now. It was just red dirt, red dust is just everywhere. I mean, it's just a beautiful place. I mean, it's just, for me, Bamiga and Sacia, all that whole Northern Peninsula area just, for me, just represents represents family. And, and, and everyone's just so beautiful. They're just, they're so inviting. They're so hospitable. Um, the landscape is is absolutely stunning. The water is, you know, turquoise, green and blues. Um, What's good eating up there? Oh, man, seafood. Turtle, dugon, crayfish, uh, fish. There's just an abundance of seafood. And, um, you know, people pay big money for that stuff, man. You know, and we've got it, we've got it at, our, at our fingertips. And uh, it became my sanctuary over time. I think four or five, I think there was about five, five, five returns back back to Sacia or back to Babinga to re reset. And it became a bit of a running joke with my uncles because whenever they see me turn up, <laughs> they'd go, what happened now? <laughs> on, on that first visit up for a reset, your Uncle Jonathan took you aside. What did he say to you? Oh, look, you know, Ate Jonathan, uh, he's my grandmother's, um, you know, smaller cousin or from a cultural perspective, like a younger brother and... Um, and he's not a man of many words, but he's just got a great energy and great presence. And he's got one of those, he's got one of those presence and energies that you just want to be around. He's just, he's just one of those men that you just want to be around. And he's just so cool. Nothing <laughs> seems to bother him. Like he's just, he's just cool. I just, you know, took to him like a, like, like a little kid, I guess, and he, and again, and it was he was like another you know father figure, and I think I just 
at that time I was just so down on myself and I was just kind of a bit lost, I guess. It would be fair to say I was actually really lost. And um, I, f I felt that I just need a, needed a sense of direction and I, and, I, and, I, and I guess I was just in need of some mentoring. You know, he really took me under his wing and, you know, and it was just simple things. It was just, I mean, because he knew that I had a gift for football and he was a, he was also a great football talent as well. But he had cattle, he had horses, he had a whole, he had a stock farm as well. So I spent a lot of time out there and just learning from him, from, you know, everything from making, you know, fences to to cattle mustering, to, to breaking in the horses, to learning how to, you know, actually cut up the bullock properly. But he also, from a cultural perspective, um, because our passages of rights as men, um, we go out on, on the turtle and dugon hunt. And you, you, this usually happens when maybe 15, 16, as you're moving in from that youth into young, uh, into young adulthood. And I kind of missed all of that bit because um, I was so kind of focused into into my football that that was all that mattered at the time. Um, so for me, you know, when he suggested that this is the process that we were going going to go through, I was absolutely over the moon. You know, so he took me on my first turtle hunt and my first dugon hunt. I think I was about 21, 22 at the time. And... Um, and it's something that I'm I'm so grateful for. It was while you were up in um, Sasia that you also had your first acting audition. Where was that? <laughs> Man, that was probably my, you know what? That was probably my fifth or sixth or sixth sixth and last reset back to <laughs> Sasia. And it was kind of like, you know, once again, you, you had the, you know, this time you got the uncles and the aunties really taking the piss out of you now um, <laughs> because they're like, man, this fella, we, we should just nickname, because my nickname's Bruiser, right? But we should we should nickname you, not Bruiser, we should nickname you Can't Get Right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm back there and, and um, I'm actually kind of, I mean, that's what's so beautiful about Sacia and, and Bamming. I mean, you know, th they knew when I... I didn't have to say anything. They knew I was in a stitch. You, they just knew, you know. I knew that, you know, there'd be a job there I'd, or it wouldn't take much to get in, get employment and then to reset and get myself back on my feet again. And uh, anyway, yeah, look, there was this... Uh, I received this email from a mate of mine and said... Uh, Hey, we're looking for actors. No experience needed. Um, need to be good-looking, play basketball, and be able to dance cultural dance. Oh well, you got one of those. Well, I got I got two out of those. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I just can't play basketball, you know. <laughs> so, so um, anyway, I uh, I ring up I ring up down down and the the call goes down to Fox Studios here. And I was like, oh, that's a bit funny. The auditions are over in Thursday Island, just across the way here. But the call went all the way down to Sydney. Not knowing the game at all, right? So I'm green as, don't know nothing. Anyway, I get a call about a week or two late, later and they say, look, yeah, we'd like you to come to TI. We've got an audition. And, you know, we're shooting the series and set in the, and we're going to film it entirely here in the Torres Straits. And I said, yeah, great. No worries. You know, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I said, yeah, no worries, you know. Well, good. And uh, audition day comes around. I throw a sickie um, at work and um, I borrowed my Uncle Jeffrey's uh, dinghy. I take it across the TI. It's probably about... It's, now, TI is probably about 30 or 40 nautical miles from, from, from the mainland. And anyway, I get there. I go for the audition, and 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 it's for the older brother of of the the main family that's in the series, and um, and I absolutely nail it, right? I nail it, I nail it, and and you know I was like, man, I got this, and and in my bones and all my sinew sinew my muscles, I knew I I I'd nailed this, man. But as I was walking out, I said to Penny, I said. I'll be expecting a phone call from you. And uh, she said, oh, look, everyone said that, that, that I was going for this role. And I said, nah, look, I'm serious, mate. I got this role and I'll be expecting a phone call. You watch. And I, with, the, with the smile, I walked away. 
go back to Sacia now. And so, man, I'm just thinking, yeah, no, I, I definitely got this. I went and bought myself a carton. This is how confident I was. I went and bought, uh, I went and bought myself a carton, and I stacked it up in the fridge, waiting there, you know. And I didn't touch it. I was just waiting on this phone call, waiting on this phone call. The phone call comes in, man, and it's Penny Chapman, and she goes, "Hey, hello, is this Aaron?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, speaking." I said. Uh, she said, oh, hi, this is Penny Chapman from uh, Chapman Pictures. I said, oh, yeah, I was waiting for your phone call about time. And <laughs> I got uh, some beers I'm waiting to open. Absolutely, man. <laughs> they were sitting there cold for the last four days. Anyway, um, she goes, oh, you got the rice? Of course I do. I was just, of course I got it. I was like, there's no surprise to me. But then anyway, then anyway she said, well, congratulations. We'll send you all the eat. She got, got my details. But as soon as I hung up the phone, man, Man, I, I, I screamed that house down. I was dancing. I was just doing the shuffle. I was flipping. I was somersaulting. I couldn't believe it because, you know, I'd, I'd gone through so many kind of, you know, hurdles and, and challenges and, 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 and getting that phone call and saying, yeah, you haven't made the team. But this one, like, I was just so elated and I was like, yeah, I friggin' got this. Of yeah, of course. So yeah, well, obviously I didn't get to work on Friday because I was still going the because <laughs> I was still celebrating from Thursday. <laughs> so that was remote area nurse, and it seemed like with that role, you'd really found your thing, what you'd loved. It was this whole pathway opened up to you, and and you moved to Sydney, and things really took off for you. The following year, you even got a Logie nomination for most outstanding new talent. But then, Aaron, came a really, a really hard year for you and your family. And to explain that, we've got to go back in time in your story a little bit, that after you and Gina split, you began a relationship with a young woman in Cairns. What were things like between the two of you in the early days? Oh, man, look, I was just totally in love with Dara. I mean, she just, um, yeah, she stole my heart. Like, yeah, it just absolutely just swept me off my feet. Gosh, um... Yeah, and it was, I mean, it was it was great. It was bliss. But then things slowly kind of, you know, start, started to kind of start coming at the seams because, um, I mean, we were so into each other that it became unhealthy. You know, I started isolating myself from friends, you know, stopped training, stopped boxing, stopped, I stopped a lot of things. Um, and, you know, for her it was the same as well. And and it became extremely toxic and, um, yeah, it wasn't a great relationship. And you had a, a daughter pretty early on in your relationship, a, a beautiful little girl, but things were really volatile between the two of you. What would happen when you argued? What, oh, what do look, you it remember? Was just, it was just a, it was a tumultuous relationship. Now, we'd get into the into the arguments and and just a lot of, you know, really kind of hurtful things were being slung around in those arguments, and you know, I um, I'd I'd put my fist through walls and doors, and and um, you know, in the end, I'd I'd be um, I'd be carted off, or the, you know, well, initially, you know, the, when the police were initially called, yeah, it's from putting my hands through, you know, pro damaging property. Mm. Which became, which became the, the ongoing theme, um, because um, because then all of a sudden, you know, I've landed, I land myself in, in, in domestic violence court, mm -hmm. and it's everything that you kind of despise about, you know, men, and 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 those men, and I've become one of them, and just, how did you get here? I mean, you've you've seen your mother go through similar experiences, and now you're here. Um, now, you may not have, and I didn't become physical with Dara, but the fact is that you're still here. And the thing is, yeah, I mean, it's just not a good place to be. And and that became, I mean, I, be, I became a repeat offender. Repeat offender, and I just knew when I was getting sucked in. Then, then, then you know, I'd I throw something, or I'd, or I'd, um, I, I'd damage. Like there'd be something that I that I damage, and and that's it. You're gone. You're out. Once and once you've got a, a court order against your name, then it became, 
became a running that was the kind of running running narrative mm. and um it was it was embarrassing it was absolutely embarrassing i mean even when i look back now like um you know i mean it is my past but you go like dude like why you know until i i once i got sick of got sick of being sick of being sick of being sick of myself that's when i was like nah i'm done but it was now that, that, it, that it complicated things because I wanted to be there for my child. And because my eldest boy is living in Adelaide now, it was just like, oh, here we go again. You know, can't get right, you know. It was like, ah. Oh. I've just walked straight back into it. And, um, yeah, it was just, it wasn't a good place to be. You and Dara were on again and off again, oh. but eventually you, you left Sydney and the career that you were kind of building there because you wanted to try to make a go of it with your family and, and you actually proposed. What did your two families think about the idea of of you guys getting married after everything that had gone on? Mate, they thought it was the most ridiculous <laughs> and stupidest idea that has ever been planned or proposed. Um they were just beside themselves. They were like, man, this is just, this is not going to be good. And um, and at the same time, you know, we're in, we're in advanced development for the Straits ABC series that um, the ABC want to hang their flag on and we're, we're kicking it along and Penny and Helen and we've been working extremely hard over the last couple of years. And I said, well, I think I want to make a go of this family. And actually, I really do. So I think I'm going to stay. So I give Penny and Helen a call and I said, look, um, I'm going to relocate to Cairns and uh, we'll continue with de developing the straits and so forth, And but I'll be, I'll be doing it from here. Man, were they pissed. Man, were they pissed. Oh, man. They didn't say it. <laughs> man, were they pissed. Um, well, the two of you got married in, in September 2008. What yeah. happened a month or so after your wedding? Yeah, look, um, yeah, that, that was, man, I can't describe the happiness on that wedding day. Um, it was just, gosh, it was, it's one of those moments that, you know, you rarely have in terms of, you know, pure relations, your, your endorphins and you're just, it's, everything's just heightened, like everything is just bright and shiny and just looks beautiful it's your you know, euphoria man like it was just pure euphoria and um um it was about a month after we were looking at um getting ready to uh, uh move down um temporarily for three months because i was doing east west 101 uh, i think we were in season two i believe about to shoot the series and and um and it all been lined up, yeah. Bring you, bring your family. You can bring your family down. You're going to be down here for three months, and it's going to be great. But uh, yeah, we 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 got into an argument around the move down, and she she was kind of she started presenting these kind of obstacles or barriers, or there was just a pushback. Anyway, we, we got into a. We got in, we got in a disagreement and an argument, and you know, I was just like, oh, this is, yeah, this is bullshit, and I'm out of here. And so I went for a walk, you know, because I I didn't want to stay there and have it out. There was it was, it was I, I I always felt that it was a losing battle because mm -hmm. we'd been down this road before. We know what ends up. I'm sick of being carted off and ending up fronting at the at the court. Um, so I was like, nah, it's time for a change and. It's a new playing field now. We, we don't we don't need to escalate this. I'm gonna go go away. You get you settle down, and we'll um, we'll reconvene. And and at the same time, the kids had just got picked up. They they'd gone off to a barbecue. So I'd taken off. By the time I got back, the house was all locked up, and um, and then I went over to Mum's place. I slept I slept there because I couldn't get in the house. And um, and then when my brother came to drop off my grandmother, he said, "Oh, there's always Dora. The kids, the kids slept at our place last night." I then knew that something was going, there was something was wrong, and yeah, went back around the house. 
and um, this time I broke in, broke in properly into the house and, um, yeah, I kind of, I had the worst feeling and um, it was almost, yeah, I actually knew where, where, where she'd be when I broke in and when I did, she, that's where she was. And I'm so sorry, Aaron. Mm. When you think back to the the weeks and months after after her death, what stands out in your mind? Oh, man. Um, just those last conversations, the last days and the last moments. You know, I, I think for me, I, I just, I carried so much responsibility and guilt and shame and embarrassment and, um, you know, blame. Because, um, yeah, because, you know, you, you, you're the last one to see her. What happened? You know, you had an argument. What, what was said in that argument? What, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you go back in and break in? And, you know, there was just so many questions. Um, you know, I got, you know, I was blamed. You know, I was, I was blamed. I've been blamed for many years. I'm, I'm still getting blamed. What helped or what has helped you see your role differently or how has it changed over time for you? Yeah, look, I think for me, because as soon as it all went down, I don't know, I just I just knew I had to hold it together for everybody else. And regardless of the murmurings or the rumours or... And, you know, I think people felt that, no, this guy's going to blow his... He's going to blow his top soon. Um, and I didn't. I kept it all together and... Because I think for the kids it was, like... It was important for me to just to keep it all together and hold it together for the kids and... Um, and during that, during that whole period, I mean, it was tough. Like, uh, but I know that I, I couldn't fold. My focus were the kids and we had to find some normality in all this chaos. Some sense of, some sense of what it, whatever this new normal is going to be. And I just felt for, for them because losing a parent you can never get that back, and it, that changes you for life. And I knew that that was now that was now the pathway that was laid before them by by no choice of their own. Your kids are young adults now, Aaron. How are they doing? Yeah, they're going, they're, they're doing well. Um, yeah, look, Kaika's um, he's he's what twenty seven now, and. He's in his last year of his apprenticeship and uh, Sparky and <laughs> funnily enough, it's his turn now up in, uh, for his turn now living in Sacia, finishing that off. What have the uncles but, got to say about that? <laughs> that well, <laughs> man, I think they love him because he's, he, he's a better version of me, right? He's the best <laughs> version of me. So, and rightly so too. So um, I think they're just blown away in terms of, you know, just how together that, you know, I mean, I, I call him kid, but, like, <laughs> he's a young man, so, like, how how together and um, he's really got a good head, head on his shoulders. He, he's just a beautiful, beautiful human being and I'm extremely proud of him. And, you know, I certainly missed a, a bullet there with him because, um, you know, I was just praying and hoping that he wouldn't be part two of me. But look, yeah, he's he's doing really well, and uh, he's in a beautiful relationship with a really lovely, lovely uh, girl, Deja, and um, and they and they're great. They they've got such a a beautiful relationship, and she comes from a beautiful family too. And Mele, well, um, I think any day now, I'm um, I'm going to be pop or granddad. <laughs> so I'm actually really looking forward to that. What kind of granddad do you hope to be? Oh, man, I'm going to spoil this kid rotten. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, I tell you, he's going to come on all my truck rides and when I go camping and right, when I go bush or when I go hunting, he's going to be right there with me. Yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to spoil the hell out of this kid <laughs> and just, then just give him back. <laughs> I said, because uh, Mele was, uh, his, his fathers and daughters, man, I said, you know, you them daughters got, Got their fathers, you know, wrapped around their little <laughs> finger, and um, gosh, 
she's more a bit more like me. She's uh, so you can imagine the 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 turmoil that she put me through. It's uh, <laughs> whoo, yeah. But you know those kids. Um, you know I'm really proud of them, and um, they've uh, really turned out to be really beautiful people. And what about you, Aaron? How are you doing these days? Yeah, look, I've done a lot of hard work. Um, you know, when I say hard hard work, just working on myself, whether that be therapy, whether it be counselling. And, um, man, I tell you, it it uh, it works. Yeah, it definitely works. And, um, you know, I, I know what my triggers are and now I'm a lot more calmer, I'm a lot more collected. I walk with a lot more peace. You know, I'm not holding on to stuff. I'm not holding on to stuff that I that I couldn't that, that I had no control over. It. So, I've been able to let let go of things, um, and that's been that's been emotional too. Because um, I think once you realise the things that you, you that that you were so attached to have been kind of quite toxic to you, mm. and just letting go of that, it's been it's been almost like a purging. Um, so it's been extremely emotional and, and um, gosh, um, it's a day-by-day process, but um, I've never been in a better place ever emotionally, mentally, spiritually in, in all my life. I'm so happy to hear that, Aaron, and thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm happy too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy too. <laughs> I had to live with myself for all these years, damn it. <laughs> finally kicked that bad, you know when you have that, that bad, uh, the bad tenant, I finally kicked that bad tenant to the curb. <laughs> so next time you go up north, it'll just be for a happy visit, just to say day and eat some dugong. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely, and, and I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, getting up there at the end of this month, um, so... I can't wait to get up there, so um, I'm so looking forward to it. And and it's a uh, that place is still so beautiful, it, it, and it just has a, a certain scent to it. It just that that salt, that sal- saltiness, that sweet salt in, in the scent in the air, and and but you can I can you can you can smell the the coconut trees and 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 that you know southeasterly breeze blowing. I mean, and it, it just represents a sanctuary for me, beauty but of, you know, strong family connection. And, and whenever I am back there, I mean, that's, you know, that's what I feel. Thank you so much for being our guest on Conversations. Thank you for extending the invitation and uh, I really appreciate it. Aaron Faso was my guest today and Aaron's memoir is So Far So Good. If this conversation has raised issues for you, remember that Lifeline is always there. You can call them on 13 11 14. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.